This is the Spirit of Leading. Where we delve into the heart and soul of everyday leadership. Because a better world begins with each and every one of us making leadership real to our family, our workplace, and our community. The world needs you to be empowered to lead, someone who can and will make a difference. So let's get started. Do you have a favorite heretic? Well, I do, and I want to tell you about him. I'm Garland McWaters, and welcome to this episode of The Spirit of Leading. Hey, what is a heretic? That term carries with it a negative connotation, usually. You know, we're conditioned to think of heretics as troublemakers and fanatics. But in general, a heretic is anyone who does not conform to an established attitude, principle, or norm. The Greek origins of the word simply mean able to choose. But today, we might also call a heretic a dissenter, or a skeptic, or maybe a free thinker. And those words don't seem to sound quite so dark. A heretic is simply someone whose beliefs defy the popular conventions of the day. And in spite of evoking the ire of authorities who have a vested interest in maintaining that status quo, the heretic will hang on to their non-conforming convictions no matter what. Heretics usually pay a price for those convictions. Often they lose status with the establishment. And some pay with being demeaned and slandered, and some pay with being ostracized by the public and having their reputation disparaged. And some even pay with their life. But history has a way of vindicating many heretics, and our lives today are far better off for their tenacity and their passion and their insights and their stories, and of course the sacrifices that they might have made for what they believe. I want to tell you about a few of them before I tell you who my favorite one is. The first one is Socrates. He's a Greek philosopher who challenged the contemporaries of his day to think about morality and virtue in new and different ways. But Socrates' big problem was that he charged the rulers of Athens to be accountable for their own immorality and lack of ethics. Eventually he was tried and found guilty of, of all things, corrupting the minds of youths and for mocking the gods of Athens. He was executed. Galileo was an Italian astronomer. He actually proved that the earth was not the center of the universe as the church leaders professed. His inventions that allowed us to observe celestial bodies literally showed that the sun was in fact the center of our solar system. But when it came to religious orthodoxy, seeing was not believing. The church put the pressure on Galileo to recant his findings, which eventually he did, but he spent the rest of his life under house arrest. Mahatma Gandhi is more contemporary. He's known for challenging the British rule over India and also the accompanying civil rights abuses that went along with that. Ultimately, they won their national independence. And his nonviolent methods have inspired many other civil rights movements. While trying to heal some religious strife later on in his life between the Hindus and the Muslims, he was actually assassinated by a Hindu nationalist. History is just full of heretics in many disciplines who stood up to a conventional wisdom to bring about some new ideas. And there's always been an inertia to hold these visionaries down, to blur their vision, to maintain the status quo, because the known is more comfortable 
and predictable. And after all, a lot of people have vested interests in keeping things as they are. Here's another one. You might not have heard about this one. Hungarian physician Ignaz Semmelweis. He practiced in Vienna in the middle, middle 1800s. He noticed that the death rate in maternity wards went up when the doctors who were attending them did so immediately after performing postmortems. They were still covered with blood and had blood on their hands. So he concluded that there must be a connection somehow, but at that time we didn't have microscopes, so we couldn't really see germs. It hadn't had <clears throat> he concluded there must be a connection, but at that time we didn't have microscopes, and so they couldn't actually see germs. But he insisted that if physicians just washed their hands with a disinfectant before coming in to work with the ladies, that that would reduce the infection and the mortality rate. And he actually was correct. However, Simmelweis's observations conflicted with the established scientific and medical opinions of the time, and his ideas were rejected by the medical community. In fact, some doctors were even offended at the suggestion that they should even wash their hands. He was ridiculed and harassed for his ideas, and he even grew more insistent and, as a result, became even more annoying to the powers that be. A few years later, some of his colleagues tricked him in going to an asylum under the pretense that he was going to be seeing a patient. When they got him there, they, they restrained him and, and confined him, and uh, they actually, the, the, the guards there beat him and secured him in a straitjacket and threw him into a dark cell. Insane asylums, as you know, were notorious for abusing patients with treatments that included things like dousing them with cold water and giving them castor oil as a laxative. The end of that story is that he died two weeks after being thrown into the insane asylum. He had a gangrenous wound, which was possibly caused by the beating. All over the heretical practice of washing hands. Oh, the links we go to to protect ourselves from those whose ideas threaten us. But my favorite, and the one I want to examine for a few minutes, is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, before going any further, I have a disclaimer and a promise. The disclaimer is that my first vocation was in the ministry. I have a Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Studies. I regard myself as a Christian, but not an evangelical, and I'm not particularly religious by some people's accounts. I mean, I do occasionally go to church. And I've actually written a book with Jesus as my focus. It was the first book I ever wrote. It was co it's called Jesus the Confronting Christ. What if you met a Jesus you did not expect? And that book's available online through Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And here's my promise. This is not an apology for Jesus. This is not a sermon. This is not an attempt at persuasion or conversion. None of that. I just like the example. So whether you're a non-believer or a skeptic or a devout disciple, we all can learn from Jesus' story. I want to use Jesus as an example of leadership because I believe most Christians do not see Jesus today the way his contemporaries viewed him from my study. They were not sure who he was, but they knew he was different. When Matthew wrote about Jesus' teaching, his teaching on the mountainside, what we now call the Sermon on the Mount, he concluded with this statement. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd was amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not like their teachers of the law. Later on, when Jesus was in Jerusalem, the chief priests sent 
the temple guard out to arrest him for his heresy and his blasphemy, they called it. But they came back empty-handed after seeing the way the crowds were responding to Jesus. And when they, the, the, the temple authorities asked the guards for their reasons, the guards said, well, no one ever spoke the way this man does. And that just enraged the chief priests. According to the recollection of John, his very close friend, the temple authorities would huddle together. They actually huddled together and they agreed If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And then the Romans are going to come away and take both our place and our nation. That's in John, the 11th chapter, verses 47 and 48, if you want to look that up. You know, it was time for the heretic to go. After all, it was a national security issue. So, what was Jesus' big crime? The crime that was so deserving of this death sentence. Simple. The priests and the temple leaders had so corrupted the religious institutions of the day that Jesus accused them of actually getting in the way of worshipers seeking a deep spiritual relationship with their God. And isn't that usually the storyline of heretics? Leaders of the established way of doing things corrupt the institutions that they're supposed to serve for personal gain or power. They were afraid of losing their influence and power. That was the real story. Well, not much has changed over time, has it? Ronald Reagan said it this way in his first presidential inaugural address in 1981. He said, the government is the problem. Actually, he got it partly right. The government is only as good and effective as those who are entrusted to govern. It's never the institution at fault. It's always those who control it, who run the institution. In his best-selling book, Tribes, Seth Godin wrote, Heretics are the new leaders, the ones who challenge the status quo, who get out in front of their tribes, who create movements. Well, I don't think Seth Godin expects anyone to sacrifice their life or to run out and martyr themselves for their cause, but I do think he would expect us to step up for what we believe, even and especially if it goes against the status quo or conventional wisdom of institutional authority. That's what Jesus did. And in this podcast, I want to offer you three leadership qualities that I respect about Jesus that make him my favorite heretic and that I think will make all of us better leaders. The first of these is clarity of vision and purpose. Simply put, Jesus' vision and purpose was to reconnect people with their God. John, I mentioned him earlier, was one of Jesus' best friends, and he wrote a whole biography of Jesus from sort of his own perspective. And he tells this story about an event toward the end of Jesus' life, toward the end of his time when he was in Jerusalem. We call it the Last Supper. He simply says that, Jesus knew where he came from and where he was going. And while his disciples and followers were sitting around the table arguing among themselves who was actually going to be more important in this new kingdom that Jesus kept referring to, Jesus took on the role of a servant, and he washed his disciples' feet, an act of service and humility. He was clear, absolutely clear, about his identity, his role, and his mission. He was singularly focused 
on his main purpose and all his efforts pointed to it, which simply was to restore a personal connection with God. Institutionalized religion had wiped it out. Over the centuries, the traditions of the religious leaders had taken on more importance than the original law and principles behind them. And Jesus was often asked by religious leaders why he continually disrespected the traditions. He said it was because they were just that, teachings of men that contradicted the spirit of the original laws. He was under no obligation to honor those traditions. Now that's a heretic. When Jesus cleansed the temple, he was sort of acting that attitude out. The outer courts of the temple had become sort of a marketplace where pilgrims who came to the temple had to purchase their approved sacrificial animals using the coin of the temple, which had to be exchanged from their whatever their currency was to the coin of the temple. And, of course, there was an exchange rate. The money changers converted it for a profit, and then the animal vendors gave kickbacks to the temple coffers. And this was not what the temple was supposed to be about. Today, we want to hear from our leaders, and we want to hear them talk about their vision and their purpose and their role and their ideas for a better quality of living for all. We want to hear them talk about what they're about. And we want to have a special connection with them. We want a melding of heart and mind with our leaders. And that comes with a message that resonates with our most heartfelt needs and desires. Leaders might get attention by being brash and crude and boisterous, but once people are listening, leaders have to come up with something to say that's worth listening to, or the audience just wanders off. Same old, same old is not going to get traction. You know, when I'm looking for a national leader, I don't want to hear all the same old, same old tired talking points I've heard for years, and I mean years. I want real solutions to my concerns that I can understand and believe in. It's not the volume or the frequency of the message but the substance of it that will connect those who are hungry and thirsty for what's being offered. Something of promise that lifts us, not like the humdrum of the leaders of the law in Jesus' time, but like someone who speaks with clarity and authority. Stephen Covey taught, A mission statement is not something you write overnight, but fundamentally your mission statement becomes your constitution, the solid expression of your vision and values. It becomes the criterion by which you measure everything else in your life. Jesus had that mission, and he expressed it. He had something to say that caused those who heard him speak proclaim he's like no one else we have ever heard. Jesus kept trying to bring out the best in everyone as he showed in his personal example how everyone could live their faith and bring out their finest qualities. I'm looking for that leader. The second thing we can learn from Jesus and his leadership is compassion for those who have no voice. I have to confess that I am a fan of the HBO series The Game of Thrones. One of the many things about that series that sort of enthralls me is the actual disconnect between the ruling class and those they rule. The rulers live in their castles on the hill while their subjects live in relative squalor somewhere outside. The rulers vie for power and advantage between and among each other without concern for how it impacts the lives of their subjects. They show no compassion for those who are beneath them or foreign to them. 
But Jesus looked out on the crowd and saw people, each with lives and hopes and dreams, existing, believing and feeling as if they really did not matter in the larger scheme of things. And when he addressed the multitude by blessing them, he was not uttering a list of character traits that we should aspire to. I think what Jesus was doing instead, he was describing the lives of those whose eyes met his, the poor in spirit, the mournful, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. He saw them for who they were, and he respected and encouraged them, and he told them they were the true examples. They knew he cared about them, and he was talking about them, and to them, finally, they had a voice. Leaders must be servants first and foremost. There are many dedicated public servants I know who serve from a spirit of compassion. I've met many of them. But they are largely behind the scenes and working at lower levels in the hierarchies of both business and politics. However, as they ascend and get farther from the front lines where the real work is done and where the multitudes live, there's a tendency for compassion to yield to self-interest. You know, it seems like when executives make deals, they become enriched, while those who performed in the trenches, those who were on the front lines, get laid off. And the executives always say, well, it's not personal, it was just business. Trust me, it's always personal. Jesus never lost sight of who was in the crowd. To many leaders, the crowd becomes a faceless mass. And the game of thrones begins. Jesus gave voice to the dispirited. His compassion led to action, direct, hands-on interaction with people of all classes and circumstances. When I go out and talk to workplaces and the people in the workplace, one of the things they tell me continually is that they wish they had more direct contact with their executives and their upper managers. But the other managers will tell me, well, I'm in touch, and I walk through every once in a while and say hi and shake hands and to hear what's really going on out there. But they're not there every day living in the trenches. Maybe they can't be. But it's perceived that that they really don't care and there's no compassion, and it's, after all, just business. But it's always personal. You see, Jesus sought to understand, and he never had to worry about being understood. third quality that I like about Jesus the heretic is that he focused on things that mattered. He confronted the things that needed to be addressed. That's sort of the thesis of my book I mentioned earlier, Jesus the Confronting Christ, because he would confront people and he would confront issues and he would also deal with the confrontations that he faced. I want to mention just a few of them. There was Nicodemus. He was actually a seeker of the kingdom of God. And what that meant was he was actually looking for the signs of when the kingdom was going to show up. Well, Jesus told him right away that he'd not, he would not be able to see the kingdom of God unless he could find a new way to perceive spiritual truths. Jesus called it being born again. Well, Nicodemus had blind spots. That was his problem. And Jesus wanted to help him see through those blind spots. So the point was that We have to deal with our inability to see the new ideas because we have to have new eyes, new perspectives, new perceptions. 
So Jesus confronted Nicodemus with his blind spots, and we need our leaders to confront us about our blind spots, and we need to confront them about theirs as well. And then there were the self-righteous Pharisees who liked to be seen in public, displaying their piety and generosity. That kind of Pharisee was into the status of his position, and he would like to have the chief seats in, at the banquets, and he liked to be seen in, his, in the right company of, of influential people and wearing the right robes. Jesus just called them out, telling them they were empty shells, according to him. And if they wanted status and public display, well, they basically got what they wanted. It was a very shallow reward. And then there was the rich young man. Jesus came across him in Perea, and he had a misunderstanding of what wealth and influence could do for him. He thought it could earn him eternal life. Jesus told him, actually, his wealth and influence is what was keeping him from the very thing he wanted. Eternal life just couldn't be bought at any price. When religious leaders asked him why he continually violated the traditions of their religious elders, he just simply said the traditions were not the main point. They had, in fact, superseded the main point, which was the original religious laws of his faith. He confronted that and confronted them over it. The traditions were the problem, and they had corrupted the essential philosophies and principles of the original faith. As leaders today, we must confront and deal with the real issues of living in a much more complex and interconnected world. We cannot isolate ourselves. There are no walls big enough, no oceans wide enough to keep us isolated from the rest of the people of the world. But we must be more integrated and more inclusive and more compassionate and more wise. The boundaries between us and them must give way to we, the people of the world. Admiral James Stockdale was the highest-ranking prisoner of war in the Vietnam War. He spent eight years in what was known as the Hanoi Hilton, which was a prison camp. Stockdale credited his survival to a philosophy which became known as the Stockdale Paradox. He explained, You must never confuse the faith that you will prevail in the end with the discipline to confront the brutal facts of your current reality, whatever that might be. Our leaders today have to find the balance of that. Give us hope for the future. Help us see what the end game is, but yet deal with the issues that are really there. And we as followers have to be willing to let them tell that story, because if we don't want to hear that story, we'll condition them to not tell it. We won't have any heretics. We keep hearing our leaders being asked, well, what's the end game as you see it? And they just don't have anything to say. Instead, they pivot to how badly the current situation is and, and how bad the current and past leaders handled things. And we never hear their real vision for the future. Well, when it comes to our national issues, I'm wondering, where are the heretics? Who will confront our national leaders today that the system in which they compete for leadership space, the Game of Thrones, is itself corrupt, and they, over time, have become the problem. Who will stand up and say that our political leaders have wandered so far from the original precepts of our founding ideals in favor of partisan party politics and political special interests? That no leader within the system is a credible prospect to lead those of us who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, we simply cannot live without the organizational properties of a government of some kind. But those who govern, 
I fear, have let us down and lost their way. It's never the government. It's always those who govern. So here we are in the summer of 2015, and I see no credible presidential candidates anywhere. It's the same old talking points, bluster and yada yada, blah, 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 as always. And the problem isn't limited to politics. It's rampant in all phases and facets of life, business, education, and religions of all faiths and beliefs. Yes, I know there are leaders out there. There are leaders already in place who have some bold new ideas, but they're at a level where those ideas are being suppressed by those who have authority over them and by the institutional inertia that holds everything down in which they have to find a way to survive. So I'm wondering who's already out there who does have a vision for a future and they're waiting to tell that story. Will they help us see with new eyes? Who is there to tell us that vision and show us the way? Who will step forward with a renewed spirit of leading to show us how to unleash that creative energy of personal empowerment within us so that we can all work together to help make things better? Not just for special interests, but for everyone. Thomas Sankara, who is an African revolutionary back in the 1980s, said, It took the madmen of yesterday for us to be able to act with extreme clarity today. I want to be one of those madmen. We must dare to invent the future. So think about the leadership of Jesus, who was a heretic in his time. He was clear about who he was and what his mission was to be. He voiced and demonstrated compassion for those who looked to him, who looked for his leadership. And he boldly confronted the issues and he stood up to the people whom he saw as subverting his central mission. Where are the heretics? We're here to support you. Will you be one of them? Thank you for listening, and don't miss out on future episodes. You can subscribe to my blog at empoweredtolead.com, and you'll get a notification in your email when new podcasts are available. You can also listen and subscribe on iTunes Podcast and on Stitcher. So go forth in the spirit of leading. Live each and every day by encouraging the spirit, enlivening the heart, enlightening the mind, and enlarging the expectations of living in yourself and in others. I'm Garland McWaters, and in the spirit of leading, I encourage you to live empowered.